Bonsoir, comment ça va? Ça va et toi? Long time no see. I know, I know. Je suis bien, je vais avoir faim, je pense. Ah, ok. Ben moi, j'ai mangé, moi. <laughs> I ate already. I did too. I don't think it'll matter because we're going to talk about food. Ah, oh, shit, that's right. <laughs> I'm sorry about that. We can talk about something else if you want. We can talk about motorcycle. We can talk about all kind of shit. Oh, we're going to. I'm Bree, and this is the Bree Search Project. My guest today is a saucy Frenchman who started his career in the culinary arts at 14 years old. He's traveled the world, opened quite a few award-winning restaurants, and been voted one of the best chefs in America. He is known to some as the rock and ride chef, but I know him as my friend, Christophe. Hello, how are you? So... How I start every podcast, I would like you to imagine that we are in the most comfortable place that you can think of, having a chat. Where are we and what are we drinking? Well, right now we are in uh, my little cubby uh, right beside my kitchen and having a, a glass of uh, Chardonnay with two oh. big bowls of ice cubes. Nice and cold short. Chardonnay. Mm -hmm. And to pop it up just a little bit more, I have my window, French windows open, and I've been feeding uh, in my backyard two baby skunks. So I'm watching them right now uh, eating. <laughs> <laughs> of course you are. Yeah, and let me tell you, they're eating well. Tonight I fed them uh, meatloaf, steamed broccoli, and roasted potato. These skunks are eating better than I am. Mm, probably eating than a lot of a lot of people every single day. It's a Vegas style buffet every single night for them. <laughs> <laughs> These skunks have got it made. They found the right house to mm. uh, to infiltrate. Yes, Pepe Le Pew for sure. <laughs> <laughs> okay, I don't have access to amazing Japanese whiskey at my house, so I'm mm -hmm. drinking regular whiskey for you. Okay. Because also I didn't want to open an entire bottle of red wine because I knew that would just be trouble. And I'm not drinking much these days. Mm -hmm. So I went for a single shot of whiskey. Okay. Um, what's your beverage of choice? Well, my uh, drink of choice will be uh, on a regular basis, on a daily basis, will be a glass of wine, red wine, usually. Lately, it's been uh, too hot outside for red wine. So I'm doing uh, Chardonnay. So ch Chardonnay, I leave it for about 30 minutes in the freezer. Like this is nice and cold. Yeah, you like real cold white wine. Mm -hmm. And even uh, right now, lately, uh, red wine, I always put an ice cube in it. Mm -hmm. uh, it's nice and beautiful when it's chill. And depending on uh, the meal that you, you pair it with, a chilled wine actually is a perfect combination. In the restaurant, they would serve you a, a red wine. Usually the norm uh, is about 60 degrees for a red mm -hmm. wine. So. Mm -hmm. But my choice will be, yes, uh, wine and then uh, in the afternoon, maybe a beer or so. I try to avoid a uh, hot liquor. Yeah. Um, yep, yep, yep. I gets me in trouble all the time, but uh, I try to avoid <laughs> that. So I know and I realize it and uh, I accept it and that's it. And uh, if I'm outside uh, socializing, no hot liquor for me. I'm at home. Yeah, I can do a good EDK Japanese whiskey for sure. But I'm at home. I know that uh, I can get, I cannot get myself in trouble. Right, right. You know. So you're clearly French. Mm -hmm. Tell me about where you're from and why did you leave? I'm a 
French guy, born and raised in France. I'm a little mutt, if I can say that. My mother is Sardinian. Her mother, German. My father's French. Uh, on my father's side, everybody's French. They're all midget. <laughs> Real true French people are small people like in Spain, you know. Yeah. I don't know. In Europe, we were blessed with a lot of beautiful things and good things. But true French people were not blessed with height. Right. And uh, the mix of culture made after that. My mother's way taller than my father. Yeah, so I, I grew up in France and... Uh, Age of fourteen, I my mother put my uh, my butt in the uh, culinary uh, apprenticeship program, which lasted three years, in order to get your CAP to a certification of an aptitude uh, professional. That's what it's called. And uh, my father, right after that, seventeen, uh, put my butt into uh, signed me for five years, first contract, five years in French SAS, special force. After my uh, military career, I decided that all this thing was not good for me. I was not in uh, in the belief of what the French government was doing to military people, and I left. Mm-hmm. I chose LA, uh, United States actually, but uh, all good people. We, we dream about. Uh, Hollywood and all that stuff. Hollywood. So Hollywood. Funny thing enough is uh, in France, we have uh, chewing gums called Hollywood. Yeah. My first thing was when I get to LA, I'm going to buy me the real Hollywood chewing gum. <laughs> Everybody laughed in my face saying, what the hell are you talking about? Well, what is this? I said, chewing gum called Hollywood. Is it? No, it doesn't make sense here. I'm like, oh, okay. Boom. One more disappointment. Yeah, little did you know it only exists in France. Only in France. And it's funny. I don't know why, but it's funny. And my generation growing up, we always thought that Hollywood Tringham comes from the United States. Funny story. Yep. Nope. We'll get into your culinary path, but I want to go back to your experiences with the military. So you were enrolled in culinary school when you were 14. Yes. Which seems incredibly young. Yes. Um, and then enrolled in the military at 17. Tell me about what you did in the military. And there's one particular story that I want you to tell, and I bet you know which one it is. <laughs> which one it is. <laughs> Paratrooping and all of your rib cage and your spine and your femur coming up through your abdomen. Oh, okay. Yeah. Oh, oh that, that one. <laughs> oh, that one. That did one. you forget? Yeah, no, I, I did not forget. And trust me, uh, at my age right now, I do not forget because my knee is giving up. Yeah. My hips are giving up. Everything is giving up. But I'm still strong. I'm still right here every single day. You are. Uh, yeah. So let's go back to the beginning. Uh, why at 14, my mom put me in an apprenticeship program. So if we back up before that, I was the kid who was never in school, always skipped school, always forged my, my parents, my mom, actually, not my father. My father's signature was like way too hard to, to forge. <laughs> And then uh, signing my own uh, excuses why I was not in school. And actually, I was uh, at the beach because growing up uh, in the French Riviera, I lived, we lived like literally by the beach. Yeah. I didn't like school. I uh, never give back an assignment. It was a math or it was a French test. My page was always blank. Mm-hmm. I did uh, going to school. I didn't like it. So I was the kid always at the end of the class. But then at the end of the class, I realized that I was making more trouble. So they put me in the front of the class. It was worse because it was easier for me. And honest truth is speaking, it was easy for me to throw books or uh, crayons or anything that I had under my hand to the, to the teacher. 
Yeah, no, it was I was a bad kid. Yeah. Uh, especially I didn't want anything to do with school. Which now maybe if I go back, I don't know. No, maybe I, I wouldn't change a, a thing. So uh, at age fourteen, with the consentment of parents, of course, uh, you are allowed friends to uh, leave the school system, but you have to join a uh, apprenticeship program. Right. So I didn't know what I wanted to do. I knew I wanted to work. I knew I wanted to work with my hand, do something different. Uh, and my mom just out of the, the blue, she's because I've been cooking with my uh, my mom and my grandmother in the kitchen, you know, during the weekend when I was young. Mm-hmm. And I love to, to help my grandmother and to do all those things. So she said, I wanted to become a, a cook. Yeah. You know, some of the greatest chefs in the world are of now. And I'm like, yeah. And my answer to her, and I, I will remember all my life, my answer to her is, cooking is for girls. Well, let me let you know that nowadays girls don't cook. Yeah, yeah. Men cook, you know. And I'm like, okay, why not? It's going to get me out of the house, no school. And I, and I tried. First restaurant that my uh, father found me uh, in our city was a disaster. The chef was horrible. Uh, like one day I came, I came to the, the kitchen. And you look at me and he said, you want to become a chef, right? I said, you're a chef. One day I'm going to be good. I'm going to be a cook. And uh, he's like, okay, so if you want to become a chef, you have to throw your hand, you have to dump your hand in a fryer. What? Yeah. And I'm like, what do you mean in a fryer? He's like, yeah, in hot oil. He's like, come with me and I'll show you how to do it. And I'm like, oh, well, no, I don't want to do it. You know, and I'm like 14 and I'm like kind of freaking out. What's wrong with this guy? You know? Right. I mean, then at the time, fryer in France did not exist the way we know them right now, and especially in the kitchen. There was just a big pot of uh, of oil sitting on the, on the fire on a stove. Right. It was baskets inside. And then uh, he has another, it's called a cul de poule in French, but uh, the stainless steel bowl full of ice and water. God. And he looked at me and he said, give me your hand. I'm like, uh, no. He's like, give me your hand. He's like, I'm like, no, you're not going to put my hand in the, in the fire. And he grabbed my hand and throw my, both of my hand in the, in the oil and then dip him in ice right away. So basically uh, you get the, the shock of getting burned, but you're not getting burned because it goes so quick. And then the ice basically shock stopped the, the well, can we say the cooking process? <laughs> <laughs> yeah. And I freaked out. I screamed. Uh, yeah. Uh, ran out of the restaurant, took my bicycle, pedal as fast as I could back to my house. My father was at the, the house with his days off. So he asked me, he said, what happened? I explained to him. He's like, all right, cool. You and I will go back. Oh, God. Little that the chef knew my father was the chief of police. My city. Oh, dear. Yeah. So he came in uh, with the gun and uh, my father brought the, the chef through the kitchen and he said now you're a chef aren't you you're like yes sir that put your hand in the fire <laughs> and oh even the sh- even the chef didn't want to do it so that was the end of that and <laughs> and then uh, the second one was a was a victory second one was in a hotel i stayed three years working from uh starting eight o'clock in the morning to two uh, two o'clock in the afternoon take a break until four come back at four until one o'clock in the morning and then do it again uh, it was six days a week as an apprentice and then uh, from washing dishes to cutting cheese to cutting fruit to start learning it, it basically the whole right the old-fashioned way then at 17 years old 
my father never forgot the bad kid that I was. Right. Uh, even if I did good for the, the three years, he said, okay, you're bad. Now you're going to show me how bad you are. And he signed me for the special forces. I went for three days, test uh, physical, mental, and uh, everything that you can test on, on you possible to be able to survive the, you know, the entry of uh, the special forces and paratroopers and all that stuff, which I did. I passed uh, the three days, high, uh, high colors. We joined, uh, I think it was like a week or two weeks later, I would receive my, uh, paper to the base for training. When we got to the, the base, we were like 68 kids, 68, and uh, we went through the training. When the training was done, the, the basic, the boot camp and all that stuff and all the training, we were four kids left. Oh, my God. And I was second in my class. I kicked ass. I, <laughs> I actually loved it. I yeah, actually yeah. loved it, for sure. All the, the boot camp, I, I didn't know that. Probably, basically, nobody knows what the human body is capable of until you you are put to the test right and yes if you are a pussy then you give up but if you're strong enough in your mind and uh because it's, everything is in the mind because if you don't have the a strong mind and the physics don't follow mm-hmm. but it was uh yeah very interesting very uh and i made it we were four when we uh we end up the whole training it was eight months second my class i was proud of myself yeah and that's that then let's talk about what you want to hear about my parachuting uh, accident <laughs> for some reason. <laughs> oh, God. You, are you sure you want to hear it? I've heard it. Mm-hmm. I've heard it. I just think I it's... I know you heard it. <laughs> I just think it's so unbelievable. No, it is unbelievable because I, throughout my career, I met and worked with uh, some um, military people that actually crashed harder than I did. And I crashed hard. There's no doubt about that. And survived. So again, anything, you know, my point is, if anything that happened, an accident, a crash, or I don't know, uh, call it, name it, anything, anything, it can be a petty thing that everything is in the mind, everything is in your mind, in your brain. If, uh, if your brain is alive, if your brain is working and strong, you can you can you can beat anything and everything possible, mm-hmm. and that's my belief. So, basically, we were jumping out of a transal a plane, uh, transal French plane, well, actually mixed a French and a German plane, and altitude of four hundred meters, uh, which in feet I don't know, but I will let you know right now how many feet is that. <laughs> that's the 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 heights of a static line. Okay, so which is not a free fall. It's a it's still a free fall, but uh, you you attach to a cable and then you jump and then the the, the cable itself uh, open the parachute. So basically, it's uh, one thousand three hundred and twelve foot feet. Feet. That's, okay, that's a lot. That's high. Y- yeah. So I jumped. My uh, parachute, my chute opened, but the problem was like I went through a hot pocket. And a hot pocket is basically when you're in a in the sky, you you have the hot air going one way and you have a cold air going the other way. And sometimes, and usually they don't meet; they never meet. But sometimes they do meet, and when uh, uh, they do meet, it creates a bubble of emptiness. There's nothing in there. Okay, they create, and then uh, they, for me to give you an example, sometimes you fly you, when you're in the plane. You fly and you feel the plane drop. 
Right. Like for a few seconds, and then your guts go up to the your heart, and everything goes up to you. Like, <clears throat> okay, so it's because the plane goes through a hot pocket, and then it's empty, and nothing support. It can be supported by nothing. So the plane goes so fast, so it go quick. The fall of the plane is pretty big, but it goes so quick because the the plane flies so fast. Right. So it's all re- relative to the speed and all that stuff. Mm-hmm. But when you're you're a single kid, my my weight, I don't know, I was probably 180 pounds, something like that, 190 pounds under a parachute. Well, what happened is the parachute closed, so you fall back, uh, you fall back, free fall. And my parachute start twirling, you know, and, and wrapping itself around. And then I try to pull the cords. I try to put it back open, but it happens so quick that, and of course you get scared. You get, uh, you you like everything flashes through your mind. Shoot. Uh, that's it. I'm done. I'm dying. This is the day I'm dying. Yeah. You're looking at the ground. The, the ground is coming in so quick. Yeah. I was frozen. So what I did instead of like uh, the normal reaction would have been to pull the, the, vent, the ventral, the, the second shoot. Yeah. But I was frozen by being scared, being uh, knowing that I was going to die and that I put myself in a fetus position. Right. It's funny how uh, the reaction comes naturally. For nine months, you stay in uh, your mother's womb in a, in a fetus position. Mm-hmm. And when anything happened, like a crash or something like this, you you go back to that position. So anyway, so I put myself in a fetus position and uh, I fell lateral kind of, I didn't fell straight down. I felt like because of the wind was taking me with it. Right. So I fell a little bit lateral and uh, I hit soft ground. And what hit first was my uh, left leg, my left foot. Yeah. And then after that, it was history. I started digging my own hole. <laughs> literally dig a hole in the, in the ground and stop. Uh, it happened so quick and then it stopped. I was in my own grave, basically. Right. I didn't feel anything. It didn't hurt at the moment. Uh, I heard a, a big crack. Uh, my body was so warm, so hot, with adrenaline going and, and all that stuff. And all I could see was the blue sky. And I couldn't hear anything. My, my ear was ringing. And a few minutes later, I started seeing faces looking at me and you know the ambulance people were, were there on a drop zone here guys like okay it's gonna hurt but we're gonna have to lift you up out of the hole it's gonna hurt and when they lift me up of the the hole that's when i start feeling pain like all my bone was going i was a doll all my bone was going together it was grinding together it was like uh and then the guy's like, okay, cool. And he's like, you know, can you move? I said, I couldn't move. I couldn't, like, you can speak. I said, uh, you're, you're, uh, how many fingers do I have? And, and I, I was able to talk to, to people. I was able to tell him, okay, cool. You got five fingers. You got three. You got two. You got... Mm-hmm. But in the same time, I was losing blood out of my, my foot. I thought it was off. And they rushed me to the hospital. And uh, they gave me uh, a nurse, the, the, the main nurse in, in the ER. Uh, stayed with me until the surgeon come to the the hospital. The surgeon was not uh, in the hospital, so they called her, and then he had to rush in. Uh, so meanwhile, she was talking to me, and she was urging me not to fall asleep. And if you fall asleep, just keep talking to me. Don't fall asleep. And uh, I was getting more and more in pain because my body was getting cold and colder. So now I could feel the pain, and she couldn't give me any uh, 
morphine or whatever injection to let me rest in peace, basically, while waiting for the the, the surgeon. She she kept asking me. She's like, "What the, what would you want to do? And everything's going to be okay. What do you want to do?" And I, I was telling her, I said, "I want to I want to fall asleep. I want to fall asleep. I want to fall asleep." She's like, "No, no, no, don't fall asleep." So I was asking her, and I'm like, "Okay, how do I look?" I'm like, "What's going on with me?" And she's like, "Well, right now you're in a uh, I don't know how do you call this in English, but it's basically an inflatable, a reverse inflatable bed, which they put your body inside of this bed and then remove the retract the air inside, and inside the bed is all a bunch of small balls, and as you retract the air, the balls form around your body right, and right. locks you." And you can't move. So she was like, right now, I can't tell you because you're inside of this thing. And she said, but you're going to be okay. You're talking. And that's that. And the, you know, the surgeon uh, finally got to the hospital and I went straight to the table. I don't know how how many hours I was under, but I woke up uh, I woke up on a bed with uh, cables everywhere. Basically, I couldn't move. No, I couldn't move. Uh, and then the doctor came in and he told me exactly what happened to me and what happened to me was not was not pretty. So left foot was gone. My uh, my left leg was part of the knee was like it was all all, all the way up like my foot. Uh, if you can picture my the bottom part of my leg was facing my face basically. My uh, my hips were over my uh, ribcage. My uh, collarbones all all that was gone. My bones were like yeah collarbone and. Uh, it was there was they were out um a cable coming out of my crutch it was weight to actually pull the uh slowly but surely the, the hips back down and that's that that's Ugh. the story and uh the high i failed 300 meters so which is 984.251969 feet but oh my god there was a, a hand he caught me on the bottom. I don't know what it was, but uh, I survived that. Yes. Yeah, you survived that. So you ended up, essentially, your bones were all compacted into your abdomen, and somehow they stretched you back out, and now you survived literally falling out of a plane. Mm-hmm. But you're, like, bionic, right? Because they had to, like, rebuild all of your bones. Yeah, I have a fake ankle. Me was uh, redone. Nowadays, my knee is, is given up, so I need uh, probably another a new set of knee now. Right. The doctor said uh, that I need a, a full knee replacement, so cut my legs again, remove what I have, and then put a new one in there. My uh, hips, every probably every year, year and a half, depending on what I do, my activity through the year or so, my, my hips pop and fall. Right. Uh, on one side, so I, I need to go see a doctor to put it back in place. Yeah, no, uh, I don't want people to, to, to see me as a, a handicapped because I'm not handicapped. I walk, and thanks to whoever is upstairs to give me a chance to, to walk again, and uh, I did after that. And then I jumped again after the accident, after the hospital, after the re-education. I went back into jumping out of airplanes. Oh, my God to make sure that I was not afraid of doing so. So I did all that, and, uh, and, and I'm good now, you know, I'm, but I'm, I'm in pain for sure because yeah. of my age, because I'm uh, standing in the kitchen uh, 12, 16, 14, 18 hours a day. Uh, right, you know, right. You know, after the military and all that stuff, I 
did and went and did and uh, uh, built a new career for myself. And I think I, I did. I did, and I'm doing pretty good for uh, in my new career. Yeah, you're doing you're doing pretty good. So let's talk about your career. Your career path has been pretty insane. We can talk about kind of from culinary school then to Los Angeles. You've like essentially traveled the world extensively. Yes, I did. And again, very fortunate because throughout my life, and believe it or not, uh, even as a kid, you know, um, I pretty much did uh, everything that I wanted to within a limit. But my parents always supported, except my bad behavior, but supported what I wanted to do. Mm -hmm. So when I left France after the army, and uh, my only option was either uh, when I was in Los Angeles, joined the uh, Marines uh, or the Air Force or the Airborne to get my uh, citizenship, citizenship and, right. and all. That's all I knew what to, what to do in, in the career-wise, uh, military guy. And uh, and then my three years culinary apprenticeship. But uh, so physically, I couldn't pass the, the military test uh here in the united states because of my physical um so went back to cooking i don't know it's kind of weird saying this because as a military you're you're very disciplined and you're you you listen and you take orders and you know until a certain point when when you're the one who gives order but i was never a good listener as far as telling me how to cook this or how to cook that i always wanted to to do my own thing Mm -hmm. uh, if it makes sense what I'm saying and and then I did and I still do to this day you know I always wanted to be me in everything that I do yeah in the cooking so I started here in the in LA and uh, pretty quick I uh fairly quick I, I'm gonna say I I put my mark my the beginning of, of my mark in uh, in the culinary industry here in LA cooking for celebrities uh, there was a joke going around after that. I was the last chef in the restaurant cooking for Gene Kelly. And Gene Kelly passed away probably a month after that. Oh, really? After visiting my uh, restaurant, uh, the restaurant that I was chef at. And uh, everybody was like, well, yeah, your food was so good. You you killed Gene Kelly. You killed right? Gene Kelly. <laughs> <laughs> that was the joke going around. But uh, I cooked for um, Gene Kelly Gina Davis, the, the Marciano, I did uh, the Marciano uh, 50th birthday, cooked for Michael Jackson, I, uh, and I I was like, it, it was the, the, the beginning, and then from there, I actually moved to Vegas, my career went up after that also as well, working uh, hotels, Mirage, Mirage Hotel, Bellagio, Jean-Georges, the Paris Hotel, have the Jean Jo opened his restaurant inside the Eiffel Tower. The 9/11, I was assistant executive chef of the Mirage. I was super happy over there. It was it was a phenomenal job, phenomenal. Yeah. You know, I loved it. And 9/11 happened, and they start laying off uh, employees in all the hotels in the whole strip uh, because the travel industry started falling down as usual. Right. You know? They start shutting down the airplanes, and so I was part of the the layoff right away. I, I got a job in uh, Maui. Oh, nice! At the Royal Lahaina Resort, 
as a food and beverage director slash executive chef. I had two hats. Again, short-lived, not because I didn't like the job, the, the, the hotel, anything. Just everything was beautiful. But I had uh, island fever. Yeah. And my OE is so small. And I'm the guy that I, I need space. Yeah. Uh, when I was in Maui, I met few people. And uh, one of them was uh, Chef Roy, who was doing, uh, at the time, a French-Asian fusion. And I was like, I was super interested about it. And, and I loved what he was doing. And I loved the food and the, the flavors, you know. He was literally doing French fusion. And the guy is, uh, Roy, I think, was born in Asia. Oh, no, he was born in Hawaii, went to Asia to study uh, uh, Asian cuisine, and then went to France, uh, study French, and then he came up with that uh, French-Asian fusion. So I asked him to stage in his kitchen for free uh, and then see what he's doing and uh, look at the technique that he was using and, uh, and all. All I had to do is learn the Asian technique and the Asian products, especially at the beginning. So I took that and made it. I didn't copy uh, Chef Roy because his his flavor was very particular, like uh, like mine now, basically. But uh, my flavors, my uh, techniques are on mine. Yeah. You know. So I took that. I learned from him for sure. And then I'm like, like I, I was saying in the beginning, I like to do my own stuff. And uh, so I took it and created start creating and plating playing with plates and the uh, dishes and flavors and mixing that and mixing it uh trials and, and uh error uh, more errors at the beginning of course than uh than anything else uh, a lot of food in the trash things that you couldn't even eat that was horrible <laughs> but i was determined to to succeed at, at, at that and well today i can say i succeeded yeah, yeah. Well, I wanted to ask you about the mixing of styles, but what is at the core of French cuisine? Well, there's no, uh, like, I'm a, you know, and I'm a French guy. Yes. I am a French guy, but I'm not like, I'm not going to say uh, there's a core in French cuisine. Uh, like, there is a core in American cuisine or Italian cuisine or anything like this. I think the, the core of any cuisine is patience love, passions, and, you know, and of course the ingredients. Right. And then after that, you have to know how to put it together. So basically, when uh, people say, oh, what's the core of the, like you just asked, the core of the French cuisine? Well, French cuisine we have in, a, in our cuisine, uh, we have different type of cuisine, different region, different uh, influence. So uh, in the south of France, for instance, we have a lot of uh, Mediterranean cuisine, which mm -hmm. is a lot of influence with uh, it's a mixture of uh, Spanish, Italian, Greek, right. our own a little bit up north, a lot of uh, you know pheasants and all the rabbits right. and all the you know game, so better, yeah game yeah ga game and and all most of our dish for sure are with some type of a sauce. Oh, interesting. In stews or most of them, I'm going to say yes. Okay, cool. French people and uh, with the sauces, we're really good at sauces. <laughs> that, I cannot deny that. We're really good because everything has some type of a sauces. Sometimes the only part of the, 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 the French that we're going to say like a, 
where it's my part, the French Riviera, where when you cook a fish, uh, sometimes it, it just goes with a drizzle of olive oil, salt and pepper. That's it. Yeah. No sauce, no, uh, or it just in the grill, you know, but uh, always with the olive oil or lemon juice. And that's, that's basically it. Mm-hmm. Uh, so there is no really a core in the French cuisine. I think the core is in all cuisine is patience, love, uh, ingredients. That's the core of, uh, of cooking, basically. Yeah. Is having the love and the passion for it, you know, and not a lot of people have it. Yeah. Especially now, I think it's changed. It's changed a lot. I thought you were just going to say butter, but that's a much better answer. <laughs> if we want to go that route, then I can say uh, cheeses are the core of French cuisine because we put cheeses everywhere. Right. You know. Right. So, but no, the core, the core of the cooking, uh, like uh, any cuisine, any style of cuisine is, is love and passion and ingredients. Of course, uh, uh, amazing ingredients, which we do have in Europe. You know, because we take the time to grow. Yeah. It's not commercial. And I'm sorry to say this, but uh, like here in the United States, everything is commercial. Everything has to grow super fast. And then right. in big quantity, it's all name and, and of a profit. Genetically modified. Yeah. And right. nothing, a tomato doesn't taste like a tomato. Potato doesn't taste like a potato. That's very true. And, and nothing tastes like nothing, basically. That's very true. I mean, I've lived and traveled in Europe pretty extensively and i'm always so disappointed when i come home that food doesn't taste like food mm-hmm. anymore yeah it's sad to say that the, all that uh in united states for sure because i visited numerous big company the produce company and then uh, you know and they gas they come in with uh with the cases of green tomato green tomato as hard as a rock you, you probably could play baseball with it Right, and that tomato will stay still intact. And they put those in the in gas chamber, and then in a matter of hours or, or two hours, they're nice and red. But they're still hard. Ooh. They 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 yeah. still hard. They like, and so they gas a lot of stuff to accelerate the process in the name of profit, of in the name of uh, of weight. Uh, you know, like uh, uh, if you look around now, uh, uh, even the the chicken now here. Some of the big company, I'm not going to give the name, but they pump their chicken. You know, they inject their their, their chicken with some type of a water solution, saline silicone kind of type, you know, edible. Like, and you get, in my entire life, I never, so you go to the store and you look at, and it says like chicken breast. Right. Are you serious? It looked like a freaking ostrich breast. <laughs> it's so big. And then you start, yeah. you cook those things and you start eating those things. It's like plastic. It's like eating plastic, chewing plastic. And, and all that is, it's it's sad. It's really sad. The, the whole process. Yeah. You know, and, but hey, that's, I guess that's the years and the generation we live in into, you know, like uh, they start feeding you with improper products. Right. And that's sad. Do you have any favorite recipes from like your family recipes when you were growing up that you remember? Yeah, I uh, I do have favorite dishes, not recipe because I was too young to remember them, mm-hmm. uh, or like uh, you know the exact amount. I don't, but I do have. Funny enough, and I'm going to ask you that question after I answer that. <laughs> I do remember most of my favorite dish 
from both of my grandmas, yeah, mom and dad's side. Okay. Favorite dish from my grandfather's both side and my mother's. I do remember the flavor, and I still have it to this day. The the, the flavor profile. Wow. So I remember the dish exactly what it is. I remember what it looked like. I remember what it tastes like. But now I'm able to put it back together, kind of close, kind of close, because I will never be my grandmother, you know, cooking and all that stuff. Right, right. But yes, I do have those recipes I, in my mind. It's pictures in my mind. And yeah. I'm like, oh, I remember she had that and that and that and that and that. And that. it tasted like this, right? And I give you a simple story. And that's probably the best compliments I ever had in, in, in my culinary career. It was in New York, a restaurant called uh, La Villette, a French brasserie uh, on 6th Avenue and uh, Bleecker. And, oh, I love that neighborhood. Yeah, it's a, it's a great neighborhood. And uh, so one of the dish on the menu was green olives and mushroom mustard rabbit. Okay. Okay. A very popular dish. You'd be surprised in, uh, in New York, their palate are more, they're more adventurous. I'm not going to say anything wrong versus California or anything like this. <laughs> But they're more advent- yeah. they're more adventurous in in a tasting exotic dish. Yeah, and rabbit is one of it's a exotic for certain people. Uh, for me, it's no more. I grew up with it, and uh, we eat uh, horses and rabbit and frog legs and all that stuff. Right. And one day, uh, the server walked into the kitchen, called me, and said, "Chef, one of the table I can't remember the table, but it's like one of the customer uh, wants to talk to you." And I'm like, uh, everything okay? And she's like, I don't know. He's crying. Oh. And uh, okay. I'm like. I don't know. He's crying. And she's like, I don't know. Him. But uh, I, she, she tell me. She's like, he's crying. And I'm like, did he eat the food? She's like, yeah, he's eating the food. But he's crying. He wanted to talk to you. I'm like, shit. Uh-oh. I thought I fought. You know, in my mind, I was like, oh, you know what? Maybe he, he bit into a, 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 a broken bone, bone or, of yeah, a rabbit. Yeah. A bone, and then uh, he's crying because it's hurting his mouth or something. I don't know. So I go over there, and then uh, I introduce myself, and I said, uh, "Sir, I said everything's okay." I'm like, and uh, the the guy stood up, and on my children's head, he stood up. He said, "Can I give you a hug?" Aww. And I'm like, now, again, and I'm confused, and I'm like, "Yeah, of course." You, I'm like, for sure. Okay. I'm like, he gave me a hug, and he's like, "The the rabbit, the dish." He's like, you are the only chef so far that reminded me my grandmother rabbit dish. Oh, that's awesome. And his grandmother was also making, she was, her grandmother was also, come to find out after that, after discussion, she was French and she was making a mustard rabbit with mushroom and green olives. Wow. And every time he went to restaurant with rabbit, he tried rabbit, but never reminded him of his grandmother, the yeah. way mine did. And he was crying. Aww. I was like, oh my gosh, that's so awesome. That's so awesome. And it's so it's so true how your memories can just be brought back to you by some of your senses. And I think it's interesting for you from your chosen profession and your talents and your skills, the fact that your memory, your senses, like senses that contribute to your memory are taste and smell and culinary aspects where you can say, I remember this moment in 
taste and I can Mm -hmm. recreate it myself now by putting together the flavors as a chef. It's different from a musician or an artist or someone else that that uses their senses in a different way. Your senses are so honed to taste and flavor. Yeah. And don't forget also as well, when, uh, I'm, I'm going to say I, I hope every uh, everybody is the same way. But uh, you have, uh, when you grew up and then uh, you're, you're close to your family, to your grandmother, to your mother, to your father, cooking for uh, French people. For European people, I'm going to say, cooking growing up is very important. You know, family dinners are very important. Family Sundays, one weekend a, a, a week, it's like, okay, we're going to grandma and grandpa. Next week, we're going to the other grandma and grandpa. Then we go in the next week, we go to uncle. And then yeah. we, we spend hours and hours at the table. And it's a, it's a, I don't know if I can call that it's a ritual, but it's a thing in Europe. We grew up. And we are very close to the family and, uh, you know, growing up and then food. Food is very important. Oh, you definitely. stay around the table. All day. For two, three hours or all day. Yes, yeah. exactly. And, and I'm sure you lived it when you were over there. Oh, yeah. I lived in Spain twice and Sunday lunches. It would be an all day cooking paella and then drinking and then this course and then that course and then drinking after. And like, it is an all day excursion of Sunday lunch. Yeah. And so all that and a lot of people don't understand uh, why we are able to do this and how we are able to do this. It is about the food. It is about the family. But it is about creating that the memory, the, the amazing moment that, uh, that you will remember all your life. Yeah. And by saying this, I'm saying like when on, the, on Sundays, we kids, uh, mom and, uh, or grandma, they grab you in the kitchen and say, you have to help. Right. You're not getting over here, sitting your butt and then eating for free, basically. You're going to go in the kitchen and you're going to help. You're going to wash the lettuce. You're going to peel the potato. Whatever little task that uh, you have to do, you will do it. But that's when, for me, and then I hope for a lot of people, and I hope for you too, that you would say the same thing. When you were in the kitchen with your mom, your grandmother, that moment that was a special moment. And it's that moment you remember all your life. And I remember all my life when my grandmother makes my favorite. Until this day, I never found anybody that can recreate that salad except me now, yeah. for sure. Because yeah. I was there with her. And I have still, it's like a movie in my mind. I can still see my grandmother, the way she was cutting the, the lardon, you know, the, mm-hmm. the salted pork, small cubes, and then uh, melted with a little bit of butter, a little bit of olive oil, and then cooked them to the crispy. Then remove that, uh, that bacon and add red cabbage and saute the red cabbage in that uh, juice, bacon, uh, bacon fat, mm-hmm. and butter. Then remove that, keep that, make the vinaigrette with the, that, that same fat. Oh. Add that to a, a, a nice, very yellow core, freeze lettuce, and then the small pieces of bread uh, rubbed with the fresh garlic, uh, with the, the hot bacon and the hot red cabbage in there. That salad is just amazing. Ugh, it sounds amazing. I told you I was going to be hungry. Mm-hmm. <laughs> but that I'm able because I have the, this memory of being in the kitchen. Still to this day, I can tell you exactly what was in my grandmother's kitchen, where it was, how many there was, how it was set up and all that stuff. Yeah. Because I, uh, they created those moments for me. Right. 
And the saddest part, the saddest part, again, here is that not a lot of family create those moments. That's very true. Nowadays. It's very true. And it's, it's heartbroken. Uh, and I can say this, I can speak of it because my children grew up here in the United States. And they were not into the, the, the cooking and the, the spending hours in the, you know, in a table was fun. They're not. Right. And it's sad. Yeah. You know? Yeah. I absolutely agree with that. And I had some similar experiences. But when you transferred to being a chef and, and opening restaurants professionally, mm-hmm. what's the ambiance like in your kitchens that you run? Like, what are you listening to? How's the vibe? Hi, guys. I hope your vibe is good and full of patience because I'm going to save that. We're going to come back with Christoph Bongrace and part two of his interview next week on the Research Project. You can check it out at BreeCube.com. Follow us on Apple Podcasts. Like us at Instagram, at Research, all the things. Christoph is going to come back and talk about more stories, more recipes, more things you need in your kitchen next week. <laughs> <laughs>